This message is brought to you by Living Faith Church. You can find us on the web at livingbyfaith.com. I want to start something today that I'm going to continue next week. So I really want to set a foundation today, and I'm going to touch on a few things, <clears throat> but I'm going to bring them up. Sorry, I've got something stuck in my throat. Sarah's going to give me a hairy eyeball, I know. <clears throat> it's all gone. Um, I'm going to continue with it next week and get into a little bit more detail, but I, I want to establish something this morning, and, and then we can go from there. If there's one thing, a, a concept, a principle that is so important in American society, it's the idea of freedom. You can go to a lot of other places, and a lot of them have got history, and a lot of them have got different kinds of texture and culture and all the rest of it, and they have a lot that goes with them. But there is no place on the globe that speaks about freedom like you get when you come to America. It's such an important part of the culture and what American society is all about. We've even written it into the national anthem. Everybody's sitting thinking, now where is it in the national anthem? (laughs) The land of the free! Just a little reminder. It's in there. But why is it in there? Why is freedom such an important part of the fabric of what America is all about? And it all goes back to our history. It all goes back to where did we come from? You see, people left where they were and came here because they wanted to get away from all the limitations and the restrictions and everything that was inhibiting their life. They wanted the opportunity to blaze their own trail. And they got here only to discover that history followed them. And when history followed them, the problem with it was that they found themselves in a situation where they were still under tyrannical rule. They were in a situation where they were being taxed for all kinds of stuff, and their life was hard, and it was difficult, and they were blazing a new trail, and they were in a new land, and they were trying to do new things. And at the same time as trying to get all of this stuff done, they still had a government that was over them, that was taxing them, that was requiring stuff of them, that was making the journey that much more difficult and that much more unpleasant. And in the midst of all of the stuff, somebody stood up one day and said, we don't have to take this. We are the people who are paying the price for all of this stuff. We want to be free. We want to be free. If you want to be free, it comes at a price. How much is freedom worth? And so what ended up happening was the people went to war. And the people overcame. And because the people overcame and the people were victorious, the people were the victors, the people were the ones who overcame, what ended up happening was what was given to them was the authority to establish a new government. The revolution was worth it. The revolution is what it took, was to get rid of an old order, an old government, to embrace something that was so important. And that that principle that was so important became a founding principle on which the country was going to be birthed. And so they had to find a form of government that encapsulated what freedom was all about. And having a look at different options, they came up with one called democracy. Democracy. 
the opportunity for everybody, the people, the ones who were victorious, to have influence and say in government so that they could be sure that everybody could protect the principle of freedom going forward. But a government is only held in place by something called an, a constitution. A constitution becomes really important because what a constitution does is it becomes the foundation to a form of government. And what it says is the constitution guarantees that the government can't change. Democracy is here. And despite what everybody, well, I shouldn't say everybody, despite what some voices might say, I want you to know that democracy has outplayed any other form of government on the globe. And all that they have to say about principles and ideas like socialism, it speaks for itself. It worked well. What they managed to do was they found something that was an ideal, something that was able to liberate them from where they were and introduce them to the opportunity to live their life the way that they wanted to, to, in, in, to build and institute a form of government that gave a framework to freedom, something that was guaranteed because it was established on a constitution. Everything that, was ca- that came into position and came into being was something which was a vision that was detailed by Lincoln in one of his speeches and it's encapsulated in government of the people, by the people, and for the people. I'm giving you that because I want to set a natural framework for you to be able to leap into where we're going. And what I want to speak about today and next week is something that I've, enti- that I've titled Government of God for the People of God by God. If there was one thing that Jesus spoke about more than anything else, it was kingdom. Jesus spoke about kingdom more than he spoke about anything else. It was number one. I like kingdom discussion. And the reason that I like kingdom discussion is because it gives us a holistic view and a holistic perspective on all the different principles that are going on that form part of what the kingdom is. And so I like it because it begins to bring a sense of uniformity to things. And when I look at it in that context, I begin to gain understanding as to why some of those principles are so important. But the thing about, the, about um, kingdom that's so valuable is that what God does is he sits and he says, I'm here to introduce something new to you. It's different to what we imagine. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. What he was saying was, I need for you to understand. His disciples and many people who followed him were actually very disillusioned about that because they thought he was coming to introduce something in the natural that would bring about a change so they'd be able to step out of Rome. And he said, you're missing the boat. I got a much better picture at play, a much bigger picture. It's all about the kingdom being introduced. And the kingdom is not of this world. He was speaking about something which was spiritual in nature. What he's saying is, the place that you live in the natural realm, there is an elevated state called the spiritual realm. 
And everything that comes into play has its birth in the spirit. The spirit realm is the foundation to everything. If you want to shift the natural, shift the foundation. If you want to change something in the natural, change the foundation. What he was saying was, you think that I'm just kind of shortchanging you here. What you don't get is that I'm giving you something which is so much bigger and so much more vast than you could possibly imagine. What's wonderful about the kitchen, the, the, the kitchen, the kitchen's good as well because it comes with the fridge, but the kingdom's really good. The wonderful thing about the kingdom is that it, it brings together all the different aspects. It speaks to us about how you come into the kingdom. It speaks to us about the fact that you as a citizen have a definition as to who you're supposed to be. It speaks about the fact that there is a plan and a purpose for your life. Your plan, your, your life is just not random. There is a destiny to each one of us. And each one of us are here to, as we live from a kingdom perspective and we allow that to begin to inform who we are, we step into a purpose-driven life so that things begin to change. We begin to recognize the fact that when I start to explore the kingdom, I'm moving into spaces in, where I'm, I'm dabbling in a constitution a constitution that is defined by grace. A culture that is defined by love. And an economy of faith. All of those things become so important to who I am and what I'm about. The reason that the, that the kingdom has consequence and has importance is because of Jesus' role. Jesus never came and presented himself as another Messiah. He didn't say that. He said, I'm all about kingdom. I'm all about kingdom. What Jesus was doing was, for this purpose was the Son of God manifest, to destroy the works of the evil one. What he was saying was, I'm a man on a mission. Understand this. I am a revolutionary and the reason I'm here is because right at the moment, each one of you finds yourself under a form of government. And I'm not talking about Rome. Elevate it. I'm talking to you about the fact that the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy is the one who's governing right at the moment. And the problem with it is you have no authority in that context. You find yourself in a place where your life is being influenced by him. You're being robbed and stolen from. Regularly, you're stepping into death and destruction in all areas of your life. And you have no ability to be able to overcome that. No ability to be able to move into freedom. I'm here as a revolutionary because I can do what you can't do. What he was saying was, I'm coming as a person in the flesh but I'm the anointed one what he was doing was he was setting himself up so that he could go and he could go into battle and when he came into battle and he died and he went to hell and he was resurrected victoriously he said all power in heaven and in hell has been given to me and because it had been given to him, to the victor is given the authority to introduce a new form of government. So what he said is, I'm introducing my kingdom. 
My kingdom becomes important because I am the one who's on the throne. It becomes so consequential for us because we begin to recognize that in the spirit realm, we love to get into the love of God and the worship of God. And and those are good things. And I'm not taking away from those things in any way because they're very important. But I need for you to also understand something, that there there are constitutional issues at play spiritually. There are legal things at play spiritually. There are some things that God can't do because he couldn't ever have the right to do it. That's why Jesus had to come. God couldn't just walk into the mix and do whatever he wanted to do. He had given certain authority to Adam, which Adam gave to Satan. I want to talk a little bit about the the, the governmental structure of the spirit realm. Because when we understand that and the consequence and the significance of that, we'll understand why Christ in you is so important. You see, the thing about it is, you never overcame anything. He did. The reason that he's important is because when you go to battle, you've got to go to battle with someone who is the victor. I've got to go to battle with somebody who sits and says, I have authority in this situation. You don't. Christ in me, the hope of glory. Why is it Christ? It's not about knowing about him. It's him. It's him who wants to represent himself and come into situations and sit and say, I have authority to bring about change here. Why? Because he does. Because he conquered. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. It's a wonderful scripture, and we get so excited about it because it talks about Jesus and the fullness of what he offers us. And although Jesus is the subject of that conversation, and he's the subject of the scripture, what I really want to do is I want to have a look at the object of that scripture, which is you and me. We talk about him, but the fact of the matter is this. If he says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, what he's saying is, those things are me. That's who I am. So anytime we go through life, what you're going to find is, you're going to have the prerogative and the opportunity to embrace some ideas, some thoughts, some feelings, some attitudes, some emotions, some dispositions, some thinking, some everything, whatever it might be. As long as it is incongruent with who he is, what I'm saying is, I'm the one who has to make some adaptions. I have to make some changes. It's the antithesis to what we have in our society right at the moment. Because what society says to us is, you can go with whatever you like. It's dangerous. Because what he's saying is, just because you like it, just because it's appealing to you, just because it's it's something which tantalizes, doesn't necessarily mean it's the way you should go, it's truth or that it's life. What he's saying is the invitation and the exhortation is to use a filter in our life as we go through life to sit and say, is this of him? And if it is, it should flourish. But if it isn't, I've got to make some changes. I've got to make some adaptions and change. Move into that thing. I'm using language a little bit loosely. I, I, I will get there. Just hold on. I am the way. I am the way. 
if there's one thing that we're raised with, particularly in an American culture, it is make your way in life. Make your way in life. And it's important. It's significant. What it's saying is you have the prerogative to step out in life and do some stuff. Move forward in that context. Make some stuff happen. And there is some validity to that. And there is a lot of benefit to that, particularly in the natural realm. God wants you. Don't be a buffoon. Get an education. It'll help you. You, You'll make some better decisions than if you don't know some stuff. It is a good thing. But as we, the, the challenge with it is this. We, we are raised in a society and in a culture that sits and says, blaze your own trail. It's saying you need to go out there and make your own way in life. And so what ends up happening is I take on the role in and I take the, on the responsibility of being a person who makes my life happen. The challenge with it is this. My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And although you might be doing that in a natural context, good luck to you. The point about it is this. What he's saying is, I am the way. He's not only talking direction. He's not only saying, look at me because this is the way to do it. He's talking about the method. It's not about you trying to do anything. It's not about you trying to fulfill your Christianity. It's not you trying to walk into what God has for you. It's you recognizing that he is the way. Not how he did it, him. He didn't say, look at me to see how you should do it. He said, look at me. I am the way. What he was saying in a nutshell was this. When you get me, you get the way. When you get me, you get the way. Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's a hint. It's about him. He is in everything and he is everything when it comes to kingdom. What he's saying is never take your eyes off me. Keep your eyes on me in everything that happens. I'm not asking for your contribution. I'm not asking for your delivery. I'm not asking for your work. I'm not asking for your productivity. I'm asking for your humility. Your humility says, I can't do that. I need you. Humility says, I can't move into those places. I need you. Humility says, I can't overcome in this situation. I need you. You are the way. Here's the way. I am the truth. One of the hardest things for people is when we live a lie. People live lies all the time. You're an addict. According to whom? I'm bitter. I'm resentful. I'm living a lie. I'm depressed. I don't feel worthy. I'm not a good person. There are things that we... Ideas that pepper who we are with regularity. 
The question is, what do we do with those things? You see, if you go to the way, the way will say to you, take every thought captive. But we don't always take every thought captive. Do you know what we do? We entertain it. And if you entertain it, you put yourself in a very precarious situation. Because when you entertain it, entertainment leads to a coronation. When you entertain it, it leads to a coronation. You know what a coronation is? A coronation is when you invite everybody in your kingdom. My thoughts, my emotions, my attitudes, my behaviors, my actions, my disposition, my thinking, my sense of of judgment, um, my ability to make decisions. Everybody's invited to the coronation. And you know what happens at the coronation? When that comes in and it begins to be the idea that defines your belief. Belief says, I'm putting you on the throne of my life in this area. Everything that's part of the kingdom, bow your knee to the one that's on the throne. You wonder why you feel the way we do sometimes. We wonder why we behave, why we justify our actions, why we do so much stuff. It's because what ends up happening is I've got something that's been coronated, that's sitting on the throne of my life, that's reigning and ruling an area of my life. And it's not him. It's so hard. You know what the challenge with it is? Once you install a king, You can't get him out. Try it. I feel bad about myself. Try and change it. Try and take him off the throne. People who struggle with depression. It's so hard. I can't get it off the throne. I don't want to be like this. I know that life is full of goodness. I know it's full of wonderful things. I know it's, but I can't get it off the throne. Because I had a coronation at some point. And now every part of me is subservient to what reigns and rules over that area of my life. I had a coronation. Be careful of what you open your heart to. Because when you embrace a belief, you coronate an idea. I am the way. I am the truth. Why could he make the crazy statement, I am the truth? Because who is the victor? He is. And the things that you cannot dislodge, and the kings and the rulers that are sitting in thrones in areas of our life that we can't get out because we don't have the authority to do it, he can! The reason that he comes in is because he says, I'm here to inflict a revolution. You're not going to stay on that throne anymore. I'm taking you out of that place. I am the one who has the authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And because of that, he can take the ruler out. We can't do it. And when he takes the ruler out, who comes and sits on the throne? Truth. Christ in me. Christ in me. 
I'm trying to give you practical ways because we talk about Christ in me, the hope of glory. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We talk about all, in the, all of this stuff. How does it happen? It's because he's the only one who has the authority to move into that domain and to bring about some change. He's the only one who can move into that space, that space and bring about a revolution and get rid of a ruler that should not be in that space. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. Life is a pointed one for us as people. Life signifies everything that is good and wholesome and robust and productive. Everything that talks about flourishing and goodness and likeness and life. Who doesn't want life? But you know what comes with it is this understanding. No matter how much you may know it, no matter how much you may understand it, and no matter how well you may be able to sit there and give a definition, the fact of the matter is you can't produce it. You can't manufacture it. No matter how you sit there and try to make stuff happen in your life, you recognize that I can't create life. And the point he's making is this. I'm so glad you discovered that. Because you know what? Life is conceived and life is born. It's not produced. What he's saying is, unless you come to me, you don't get life. He speaks about knowing the scriptures and all of those things. And there's a lot to be said for that. And it's a really good thing. And I'll speak next week about scriptures, why it's so important. Because it gives us a, a, a map to the treasure of our life. It gives us context. But what he's saying is, don't live in that space unless it leads you to me. Unless it brings you to a place where you come face to face with the Christ. We don't move into that space where we realize all that he is and what he's all about. Are you with me this morning? Yes. You seem very serious. <laughs> Life is birthed in us. Life is birthed in us. It's hard for us as people because we struggle with something called the pride of life. I'm trying, I'm praying for myself, Rafa. And I'm done with praying for me, I'll pray for you, okay. The pride of life. Should I tell you what the pride of life is? The pride of life goes back to Adam. You see, there are two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God and it's the kingdom of Satan. It's the kingdom of life and light and love. The kingdom steals, kills, and destroys. It's the kingdom of goodness and the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of goodness is defined by humility. The kingdom. What did I say? The kingdom. Did I say darkness or light? I did say light. Okay, let, me, let me clarify in case I said the wrong thing. The kingdom of light is defined by, is defined by humility. The kingdom of darkness is defined by the pride of life. You see, the kingdom of darkness came into operation when Adam sat and said, Let me be like God. I can be like him. What he was saying was, I don't have to be dependent on God for so much of my life. I can do it. The pride of life. We struggle with that so much, even in our Christianity, because we're introduced to love and grace and goodness. And we're so thankful and appreciative for that. And we ask him what we have to do. 
It's like I didn't ask you to ask me what to do. You're functioning from the natural realm even though you've stepped into the spirit realm. You see, in the spirit realm, things are born. They're not produced. In the natural realm, things are produced. You don't step into the spirit realm and say, I love grace and I love love and I love what you're all about. Tell me how I can make it happen. Humility says, do you remember? Ah, I'll talk about Ah. No, because then I've got nothing to say next week. Do you remember that there were two people who went to go and pray in the temple? And one of them was a religious man. And thank you, God, that I'm so good and I'm so wonderful. And I've, I've done all of these things. And I'll look at my life for you. Pride of life. And you had somebody who walked in. And he said, God, have mercy on me. A sinner. place of humility in the kingdom you come to where you recognize I can't do anything to make that happen and you get to the point where you say God if you don't do it I'm not going to realize it if you don't give me that I can't get it that's a good place to be humility is what drives and keeps the kingdom fluid. Because we come to him recognizing that he is everything and all that I need. He is the overcomer. He is the conqueror. He is the one who's more than enough. It's so important because when he moves into these dimensions of our life and he conquers and he overcomes, what ends up happening, I move from a place where I live from a different disposition. You see, when he comes in and he overthrows things that are sitting on the throne of our life, I no longer live from that place. I live in a different way. So what ends up happening is I move into a paradigm where I'm asking him out of humility, I need you, Jesus, to come into this space. And I'm looking for this area to be born again. I'm looking for conception and life to be birthed here because I can't deal with who's sitting on the throne. Only you can. He comes in, he conquers, he overcomes, he makes it righteous. And what ends up happening? The life of God is put into that place. And I am born brand new in that space. So it introduces us to the idea that in order to be an overcomer, you're going to have to be overcome. Until you are overcome. Until he comes in and takes up throne and becomes Lord over that area of your life. It's not part of the kingdom. When we talk about kingdom, kingdom has everything to do with the reign and rule of Christ in my life. That area of your life has just moved into the kingdom when the king moves in. But until... He overcomes that area of my life and moves to the place where he's seated on the throne of my life. I cannot live an overcoming life. Christ in me, the hope of glory. In a very practical way. I am the way. I'm not here to show you the way. I'm him. I am the truth. 
I am the life. When I step into your life, when I step into your situations, when I step into your heart and the different areas of your heart, when I come face to face with different things sitting on the thrones of your life, that's when you realize Christ in me. It changes me where I am in the inside and affects the outside. We are in the world. We're not of the world. That's what Christ lived for us. You know what he was saying? You are in the world, but you're not of the world. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You are living in the domain of a kingdom which is not defined by me. But you're not of it. You are of me. That's why he says, don't be conformed. Because what he's saying is the things that you see around about you, the things that define the world, are things that are not of my kingdom. Don't allow that to have influence in who you are. Come to me, the way, the truth, the life. Keep your eyes fixed on him. You're in the world. You're not of the world. This is where our Christianity becomes really gritty and practical. This is where we're walking out our salvation. You see, what Jesus modeled for us, and I'll get into these two things more next week, but there were two important principles that he modeled for us. The first one was this, it's no longer I who live, it's death to self. It's not about me, it's about the divine life on the inside of me. Jesus was born in the flesh. Jesus is the flesh, the man. But he was to live as the Christ, the anointed one. What did he say? He said, it's not my will, but thine be done. What he was saying in that context was this. As you navigate life and as you go through life, you're going to have choices about what you want to do in situations. His, his life was so closely knit with God, with the Father, that what ended up happening was they were two in union. Established on the inside of him, he had the life of God because he was born of the Spirit. But it was something which was so alive on the inside of him and it had given such definition to his soulish realm that the thing is when he walked into a circumstance or a situation, he knew what the will of the Father was. He had to make a choice. Do I go his way or mine? Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane is one of the, the best examples. Jesus is sitting there and he knows what's ahead of him. He knows what's to come. He knows what's sitting in his future and he has to make a decision. And he's sitting there because Jesus is sitting saying, I've got to feel this. I've got to go through the pain. I have to be the one who's going to be crucified. Do I really have to do this? And God's will is there sitting saying, I need for you to do this. I need for you to trust me. And in this place, what will end up happening is, if you trust me, you'll see where you'll end up. What did he say? Not my will, but thine be done. What was he saying? I'm giving you the throne in that space. And I'm living under your authority in that place. When he does that, what he did is he lived a lifestyle where the father ran the government of Jesus' life. The father ran the government of Jesus' life. It's not me who does the works. It's the governor inside who does the works. 
It is the Father on the inside of me who does the works. Why could he say that? Because he had made room for him. On the inside of him, he lived a lifestyle where he was continually not me but the Father. And when the Father defined those spaces, the Father not only came into that place, but he came in with his authority. And as a result of that, when Jesus lived from those places and he walked into situations and he knew what the Father wanted to do, he was exercising his government authority that was alive on the inside of him to bring about change. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. It's not me that does the work. It's the Father on the inside of me. The government of his life. There is something that happens in our life which transcends the natural. And I'll talk about this a little bit more next week as well. But when life is birthed in us, it's a hard thing for us to understand as people because we want to know process. How did that happen? How did I do it? How did I create it? He didn't say that. He said, let me birth it in you. How do you create life? We don't, have a, we don't have a grid for it because it's not something that's in our spectrum of capability. What he's saying is you can't do it. I've got to birth it in you because it's my nature. But when I birth something in you that's of me, what ends up happening is it changes everything. When it becomes alive on the inside of you, it is so real to you and it's so robust. It's like a part of who I am. That's why when Job was in a situation where Job lost everything, he lost everything, more than everything. All of his kids were dead. Everything was awful. He went to his wife to sit and say, can at least you give me a little bit of comfort or something? And she said, it's probably even worse than you imagined. It's probably better that you just died. When your best outcome is death. In all of this stuff, he sat there and he said, Though you may slay me, yet I will trust you. That's not natural. People don't do that. There is something alive on the inside of him that said, I don't care about everything that's happened here. I see it. I'm aware of it. I'm not blind to it. But it doesn't matter. Do you know what's alive inside of me? I got life. When we have life, something happens. I spoke last week about faith. Faith is not of you. If faith was of you, you wouldn't be able to deal with any circumstance or situation. The first time you came up against everything, you'd be aware of the fact that I don't have a foundation to be able to conquer. Faith is of him. Maybe next week I'll get into it. Faith is Christ. Faith is Christ born in you. When he is born in you, I'm so aware of who he is and what he's about. I'm so aware of him holding that place in my life that it doesn't matter about the stuff. So he may slay me, yet I will trust him. Yet I will trust him. We don't birth life. And so our Christianity is dry. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, 
I live by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ is to have consequence within us. And consequence within will redefine who you are. And when it redefines who I am, when it changes my identity, when I become the habitation of the the incarnate one in a way that I recognize, a way that's alive on the inside of who I am, what ends up happening is it changes my disposition. And when I move, move into circumstances and situations, I recognize purpose. You have a different purpose when you feel that you're not worthy and you walk into a situation than when you walk into the situation, exactly the same situation, and you see yourself as the son of God. Our identity is consequential. Who you are in Christ changes who you are. And when it changes who you are, it changes your purpose. So now let me change that. It doesn't change your purpose. You begin to recognize purpose. You think you should do one thing only to discover that you were here as a change agent. I haven't got any time because the snow's coming. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the dusting and the flurry. All those people who stayed home today and they ran off to Wegmans to stock up with enough food for the rest of the month just in case they got snowed in for the night. There you go. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It's so important and I'm something I'm learning so much. Is how real he is. He's not a concept. He's not an idea. He's not a religion. And when you begin to recognize that there's some things that he offers in relationship that you're not going to get anywhere else. And it's just birthed out of pure love for you. takes you to a place where we begin to change the way that we relate to him because it's not trying to be good for a God who's harsh it's living in relationship with a God who loves you 